The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. Last week we uh, began a series through the book of Mark. It was called The Lion and the Lamb Revealed. And I took you to that awesome moment in the Bible, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where Jesus is portrayed as the prophesied lion of the tribe of Judah and simultaneously as the Lamb of God. And as a result, we see that he is worshipped by all of heaven uh, for what he accomplished. And, and one of the things I noted in the message last week is there's an odd paradox in that, those two images. This kingly, messianic lion, majestic and powerful, and this lowly, messianic lion, uh, lamb, pure and uh, a sacrifice. And the point of the entire setup there was for you to ask the question, if that's the end game where we're headed, where did it all begin Where did it begin in the life of Jesus? Which, of course, set the series and the tone for the series that we're in right now, the book uh, of Mark, uh, where in a unique way, his gospel rapidly establishes um, both the authority and actions of Jesus in the first eight chapters and then his lamb-like sacrificial mission to the cross in the final eight chapters. And final thing by way of review, in those first verses we covered last week, the emphasis there was on preparing for Jesus. We saw multiple people prepare for the arrival of Jesus. Mark, the writer himself, we saw his entire life and how God prepared him to be able to, 30 years after Jesus died, write this first gospel It's an incredible story. And then we saw the powerful ministry of John the Baptist, that forerunning messenger who prepared people for the arrival of Jesus. And today, he arrives. And it's important for us to grasp that hanging over every single message that you're going to hear in this book of Mark are questions that you and I have to ask. Is Who is Jesus really? Why does it matter? And what must I do about it? Those are the really the questions Mark is going to evangelistically, apologetically continue to ask you to consider. Ever heard the expression, by the way, um, good things come in small packages? Some of you are like, uh, I don't like small packages. I like them really big. But uh, just pull out that $1,800 iPhone uh, in your, in your uh jacket or your pants, your pants, uh, you're running your life through it. So uh, th- that point is proven already. Good things come in small packages. You know it, you live it, whether you accept it or not. And that to me feels like the five verses that we're going to look like today, look at today where Jesus is baptized and then Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And you could easily read the book of Mark, quickly go through these five verses and go, well, that's jolly good. We get to see Jesus baptized. He's tempted. Next. And you're going to miss so much that you need to have laid down in your life 
to understand the rest of the book. These are massive events for him. The title of the message today is The Water and the Wilderness. And uh, uh, if you'll lean into these two scenes uh, that I'm going to unpack, I want you to be able to find hope today, confidence today, and an opportunity to marvel at Jesus as all of heaven does in Revelation 4 and 5. Okay, let's start with this first scene. If you're taking notes, Jesus in the water, my hope. Jesus in the water. Look at verse 9 with me. It starts out this way in your Bibles. At that time, Jesus came. Now, I'm going to stop right there. How great is that? Jesus came. How would you have liked to have been in uh, the valley that day when for the very first time the 30-year-old carpenter's son, the very son of God, born of a virgin, steps over the hillside and here he is now. And listen, the world will never be the same because Jesus came. And he walks right down here, and he's about to be uh, baptized. But I I just love the phrasing of those two words Mark uses, Jesus came. You're, by the the way, you're going to see that a lot with Mark. Mark's a kind of like, how do I boil this down into uh, the simplest expression? And uh, for him, it was, Jesus came. Thanks for letting me splash around in my exuberance there for a bit. But I had to, because with those two words, everything changes. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Did you know this is the only moment in the New Testament where Jesus and John spend time together? I don't know how long it is, but what are we talking here? 20 minutes? 30 minutes? This is the only time. They will, they'll communicate back and forth through their disciples a couple times in the ministry of Jesus, but this is it. This is it for these two guys. When Jesus comes over the hillside, John already is famous in the land for his ministry. He will continue his ministry for about another six months before he is jailed and then beheaded. Now, the reason that this moment of these two key figures in the Bible is so key is because everything that happens in the water is really the coronation of a new king. Something necessary before you're about to go preach, hey, the kingdom of God has come near in me. This is the coronation here. And what happens here is meant to give you hope today. Are you coming here looking to strengthen hope? You can find it if you look at Jesus and watch him, watch what he does. I'm going to give you these two scenes and just trust that the Lord does that for you. You're like, well, how does he give me hope when I watch his baptism? Two things here about it. Number one, his baptism foreshadows his commitment to deal with my sin. Now, if you're wondering why Jesus got got baptized in the first place, uh, that's actually a really good question. Uh, Mark knew Jesus was the Lamb of God. Mark knew that he needed no repentance for sin, for he was sinless. So for why? Why is Mark writing this? Why did this happen? I mean, John's entire ministry was preaching about repentance of sin and getting right with God. 
What's Jesus doing here? In fact, we're told in other Gospels, did you know this? John the Baptist actually had a, had a problem with it. He was confused. It kind of short-circuited him a bit. I mean, when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he's like, what? Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 14 tells us actually this, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? John's, John's saying, I'm the sinner. Haven't we got this all upside down, Jesus? I mean, you need to baptize me. Jesus' response in that passage was, Jesus replied to him, let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Really, Jesus is saying, uh, John, I want you to let this one go. Don't hinder me, John. Yield to me on this. I know it's unusual, but it's special. It's important that this happens. It's, as it says in the book, right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what Jesus is doing here in the Jordan River is he is making a very important statement to us. He is identifying with us those in uh, baptism who have acknowledged their need for repentance, have confessed their sins, and have looked to God for forgiveness. There's something incredibly symbolic happening in the River Jordan here when Jesus comes to get baptized. The great Scottish preacher Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. Um, It enhances the way I view Jesus in the Jordan River now like I, I never have before. I just read it this week. And uh, I want to put the quote up. Uh, This is what he says. Consider it with me. As we see Jesus here in the water, he already indicates how he will become our Savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. What he's saying is that Jesus goes down into that same water, which is really symbolically tainted by all of the sins that the people John the Baptist had baptized. It's really a preview of what's to come in the life of Jesus with his work on the cross. It's a preview of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, God made him sin who knew no sin so for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I need you to know, Jesus' commitment to be your sin bearer didn't begin later on when he started teaching. It didn't begin later on when he was discipling his disciples. It started right here. It's foreshadowed right here, looking to his death. Now, something immediately happens um, as he comes out of the water. And here's the second thing I want you to see that can give you further hope when you see him in the water. It's this, his approval. His approval by a triune God confirms my faith in his claims. See, to be a Christ follower, it means a lot of things. But one of the things it means 
is that all of those claims that Jesus is going to make about himself as you read the Gospels, is, it, it, it means you believe those things. You're banking your life on those things. And the events that happen now kick off that. Look at verse 10. Jesus, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, notice, he saw heaven being torn open. That's pretty graphic language Mark's using. He's not looking for eloquence here. And if you read the Old Testament, uh, it's not an unfamiliar notion for whenever God used to break in, the heavens were torn open and a supernatural event occurs. It says, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. When Jesus comes out of the water, his coronation as king takes place. And there's really two parts to it. There's a, there's a visual part and then there's an audible part and we get to see both. Here's the visual. Um, and uh, let's be clear about this. This isn't some vision that only Jesus saw. It was definitely seen by John and I have no reason to believe that others there didn't see it as well. For example, in John 1, John the Baptist says, I saw the whole thing. And, and, and in John 3, he says, the spirit was given to Jesus without measure. That means the full presence of the Holy Spirit, the infinite power of the spirit, the anointing fulfilled messianic prophecy in Isaiah 42, that the spirit would come upon the Messiah. Now, that's that's the visual. After the visual comes the audible. OK, the affirmation of the father. Look at verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son. Whom I love. And with you. I am well pleased. No prophet ever heard that. No angel ever heard that. Now I'm sure you've noticed in this unique moment. Uh, that we have all members of the Trinity present right here in the water. Now, the word Trinity, just for some of you, for a little clarity, doesn't appear in the Bible. So why have Christians always insisted that it's central to our faith? Here's why. Because when you read the Bible you discover very quickly that God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each distinct, each as a person, each equal to one another in terms of their eternity, their power, and their divinity. I'll tell you this, though. Explaining the Trinity is hard. I mean, it really blows my mind and i'm glad i'm in good company because every theologian i've checked in church history back to saint augustine has struggled with how to articulate it perfectly um it is the most unique description of a god that exists in human history there's really nothing like it and by the way it's not what some people say which we call tritheism which is really three different gods that just like to hang out together or there's another kind of twisted version it's called uh, uni- uh unipersonalism which is it's one god and he just decides based on his mood how he's going to appear 
Sometimes it's Father, sometimes it's Son, sometimes it's Holy Spirit. That's not what the Scripture teaches. What is revealed in the Bible is one God in three persons and we who know one another and love one another. And I'm going to tell you something. To me, this is one of the best evidences that Christianity was not made up by man. Because if you're going to make up a doctrine of God to create a following in your own religion, first of all, you would never think of this. I mean, who's going to come up with this? Second, even if you did, you'd never put it out there because who would ever follow it and understand it? You wouldn't. Unless someone like Jesus came along who claimed to be God who claimed to be one with the Father, who affirmed the divinity of the Spirit, who lived the life he did, died, rose again, and he was attested by witnesses who saw it all and who were willing to be martyred for it. As you see Jesus' life, you're today or as we go on, you'll be thinking, how on earth could he live the way he did with such... Certainty, such confidence, such groundedness. I don't feel that way on my best day. Do you know what his certainty, his confidence, his authority was grounded in? It was in his identity. And there's no coincidence at that. How many times in the ministry of Jesus do you hear him say, I do whatever the Father says. I and my Father are one. I came to do my Father's bidding. Whatever my Father has said to me, that's what I have said to you over and over and over. See, Jesus knew who he was. And his Father's affirmation of him right here is critical. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. I need to take a sidebar that's really not directly related to this passage at all. But it's a pastoral sidebar. I'm not oblivious to the fact that I'm talking to some people here today who struggle with their identity, especially due to father-related wounds. I've just talked to too many men and women over the years who've told me stories of a dad who would never say, I love you, or I'm proud of you, or you're mine, or stories that are much worse, that include cruelty, and for some, no father at all. And... The great news of the gospel, and this is what the preacher has to do for for broken hearts in that moment, is to remind you, listen, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, God is your father. And God wants to get a hold of that ugly cloud that's hanging over your head that you can't get away from and the pain that that cloud causes you and he wants to get it into your heart. You're my daughter. You're my son. Because of your relationship with my son, all of your sins are forgiven. Because you love my one and only, I am well pleased with you. And nothing can separate you from my fatherly love and acceptance ever. Friends, let that be your identity. It's got to be. 
Don't walk through life defined by what your earthly father or parent didn't or did do. But receive today the healing of forgiveness, of new life, of new identity in Jesus Christ. That is where the victory is. And as if to assure you, Mark wants you to see the determination of Jesus for you to make it possible to know him in this second scene now, from the water to the wilderness. Jot this down. Jesus in the wilderness, my defender. Look at verse 12 in Mark. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, (laughs) being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels uh, attended him. That's all that Mark gives us on this war in the wilderness with Satan. Matthew and Luke go into much greater detail on it, and I'm going to draw a little bit from Matthew in a moment, but Mark really just wants you to see that immediately after coming out of the waters, like there's no party. There's no time for Jesus to chill. There's no celebration, no heavenly choir breaks out. It's just like immediately, a word Mark uses over and over again, Immediately, we see that Jesus is, is led. Some translations say driven. The word there is, it's a very strong word that I would just say means Jesus was under such a strong compulsion of the Spirit that he was, he knew that's where God wanted him to go. And, uh, Matthew tells us he went there for a reason. To be tempted by the devil. Heaven had just opened at the baptism. And now hell is going to open. In the wilderness. Why did Matthew tell us that he was sent to be tempted by the devil. What is up with the temptation of the devil for Jesus right now? Here's the reason. Because there's a big question hanging over the head of Jesus right now that needs to be addressed. It's important. And, it, and, it, and this is the question. Can the Son of God meet and conquer... This illegitimate and arch enemy, can he withstand the most alluring assault that Satan can devise against him? He can't establish the kingdom of God if he can't conquer Satan and his schemes. And if you're wondering why why the wilderness, what's the deal with the wilderness... Um, in the Jewish mind, by the way, at this time, the wilderness was associated with gloom, danger, and that's where demons hung out. That, that's kind of, like this, this isn't a pleasant wilderness trip with canoes, Algonquin Park, fishing, all that stuff. This is the wilderness. 
Only Mark is the one to tell us there's wild animals there to add to the danger. I think that would strike a chord, by the way, with the many Christians in Rome who, were, who would be reading this book by this point, around 60 AD, who were being martyred for their faith by the Romans. And guess what? The Romans tended to be cruel. And they used wild animals uh, when they killed Christians very often. Now, there's there's an incredible contrast that the Bible makes between Satan's temptation of Adam and Jesus, who is called the second Adam in the New Testament. Um, When Satan tempts the first Adam, by the way, do you remember where that took place in Eden? That's a beautiful place. It was a lush garden. He's got companionship with his wife Eve, the animals. We know they live in harmony. Okay, And, and Adam lost. He fell for the temptation in the most perfect setting you can be in. The second Adam, well, he's alone. He's in an anti-Eden in this wilderness. It's fraught with dangers, wild animals, and, oh, by the way, he's been fasting for 40 days, so, uh, yeah, the hunger, the whatever goes with that, I did a little reading on fasting, and I'm going to tell you, uh, by around day 40, you're starving to death. Literally, your body is consuming itself. Jesus is physically close to death, and I don't even want to try to imagine the ability to have any clear thinking in that moment, that state. That's when the enemy shows up to really pour on. Now, before I get to um, uh, that Matthew uh, 4 scene that I'm going to unpack, what we're going to find when we look at all this is, is something that is so critical, and it's this. Behind all of the incidents Jesus is going to face in the book of Mark, demons, disease, death, man's rebellion, and massive unbelief and hostility, that behind all of that, there these earthly scenes, there is a supernatural conflict that goes on. And Mark is exposing it here. And, and in Matthew, when I go to Matthew 4, it's really going to get exposed I need you to know, though, that Satan's goal is not to try to cause Jesus to suffer. Jesus is already suffering. Satan is far too shrewd and sly for that. His mission is to get Jesus to abandon the road to the cross. That's what he's going for. To abandon the path of humiliation and suffering. That may surprise some of you. Who maybe have just thought, oh, Satan was there to sort of make it difficult for him. Well, he was, but in a different way. He's not going to spend time trying to give up Jesus' titles or his royalty or privilege. I have no doubt Satan was at the baptism. He knew who Jesus was. He saw what happened there with the Trinity He knows who he's dealing with, and he knows that if he can get Jesus to fail and actually disobey his father, then he can keep his kingdom of darkness. The the Messiah couldn't accomplish what he was sent to do, so he's going to try to throw Jesus off that game and to take the easy route 
Abandon the humiliation and the sacrifice. Now, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, flip over. Um, you're going to have to flip back to Matthew to chapter 4. And I just want you to watch Satan's three temptations. Three temptations. What they tell us. Matthew 4. I'm going to start in verse 3. First temptation. Satan questions the provision of God. It's interesting how Satan is actually identified with one of the common titles that he gets. The tempter, it says, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Imagine saying that to a starving man on the verge of physical death. How tempting do you think that would be? At the peak of his starvation, he gets this. You're hungry, Jesus. You're the son of God. You're the anointed one. Your father's not doing a very good job taking care of you. Why is he doing this? Why is he making you suffer? Why is he withholding from you what you deserve? What kind of father is that? You should have respect, Jesus. You have a right to eat. Don't accept the humiliation going on here, Jesus. Use your power and satiate yourself. Do you not hear the echoes of Eden here? Doubt God. Focus on what you deserve. Set your own course. That's Satan's plan. That's how he works. Satan's not wasting time arguing with Jesus about whether he's a king. He's trying to get him to abandon the path to his cross. He's trying to get him to abandon God's plan, which would be sin. And he was doing this because he knows that the cross was a necessary sacrifice for sin. If he was ever to be the ultimate sacrifice, no cross, no one to reign over. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered him, It is written... Now Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 8. And that scene is the whole manna from heaven scene with the children of Israel, by the way. Boy, he's good. For it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He might be starving on the verge of physical death, but he is living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit right now. He is relying on God's word, which he's going to do three times. Friends, that's the only place we're going to find victory when we're dealing with the enemy. Like, honestly, how many times have you had the feeling, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I I have been laying it down for the Lord lately. I mean, I'm really, really growing in my faith. I've devoted my life to it. Why isn't God taking care of me right now? Have you ever had that thought? Just... Has it ever been whispered into your mind at that moment? How come God isn't taking better care of you? Satan's not done. This was the prelude. Look at the second temptation. Satan questions the protection of God. 
starting in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, that would be in Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Verse 6, If you are the Son of God, he said, By the way, I don't know if he's questioning it like he's not sure. I don't think so. I think it's psychic, psychic warfare he's attempting on Jesus, trying to get him to doubt himself, whatever's going on. He's playing all sorts of the games he plays. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Satan's, Satan, Satan here is going... I can quote scripture too, Jesus. You want to play that game? Let's play. By the way, did you know um, the devil knows the Bible content better than any of us? He's been around a long time. A lot of time to study every single word in this book. He's been theologically trained at the best seminary ever in heaven. At one point, he was the director of worship for the heavenly choirs. So he knows God's ways. He's been studying man forever. And he knows every word in this book. So very astutely, very shrewdly, he yanks out a couple verses that suit him from scriptures. Again, Jesus faces a real temptation to display, to pull out the power that he has and go against his father's will. The second temptation, like the first, was calculated to be very psychologically seductive to Jesus. Jesus, just jump off. You'll make a soft landing and everyone will bow down and you'll have no humiliation. You'll have no rejection. They'll all embrace you as Messiah, Jesus. You'll, you'll have a great life. Say no to the humiliation. Say no to the suffering you know is coming. Do this instead. Set your own course. Verse 7 Jesus answered him, it is also written, another Deuteronomy passage, by the way. This time it's in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. (laughs) How often do we... How often do we do that? How often do we make deliberate, deliberate choices to put ourselves in an environment surrounded by temptation, whatever that that is for you, and then we disobey God, and then we pray, Lord, why didn't you help me with that? Friends, can can I just be straight up with you? You cannot expect to walk into places of temptation, stay in there, and then say to the Lord, while you choose to stay, Lord, stop me from sinning. It's on you. 
You say, well, well, does God help his saints? Oh, he'll help you. Stay away from that place. Let's start there. The Bible tells us there are a couple things, and I could go into great detail and a lot more, but there's a couple things you just got to know about you and the enemy. Number one, the Bible says, stand your ground. Stand your ground spiritually. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we, we, we know that's there. Second thing, you got to grow in your knowledge of the word. That, if you take nothing else from seeing Jesus here, you have, you, please see that. You cannot expect to be strong in the spirit, strong in the might of his power, and be kind of at kindergarten level for 20 years in the word of God. That's why what we're doing right now, in this moment, is so important. When you come here, when you're sitting here after worship and we're listening to God's word, it's not about the preacher, but it is about this. And, and I'd encourage you, be in a place right now as you're sitting here. Lord, what do you have for me? What are you pressing on my heart? Where are you challenging me? What do I need to hear right now? And not just on Sunday mornings. Not just Sunday mornings, but during the week, regular devotional readings. There are community groups to be a part of where the word is read with a friend, perhaps one on one. There are online resources. I say I could list 10 more. Here's my here's my real question. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan at all to grow in the depth of God's word? Satan may not be able to keep you from coming into church, but he'll do his best to keep your heart elsewhere. And I want you to know we can have victory over these matters if we commit ourselves afresh to him and defeat temptation as Jesus did with the word of God. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the word, the world. That's a promise. Satan tries once more. This is the doozy. Third temptation. Satan questions the promise of God. And by the way, uh, there is a promise. You're like, what promise are we talking about here? There's so many. Psalm 2 is the promise. Psalm 2, God promises the Messiah this. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Satan's going to play around with Psalm 2 on Jesus. So we're in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4 verse 8. This is what it says. Again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Verse 9, he says, the audacity of this guy. All this I will give you. He said, if you'll just bow down and worship me. He presents Christ with a vision of the world. Now, I'm using my imagination here. I don't know. It's not in the word, in, in the word but um, I wonder if that vision was a, a vision where Jesus saw 
all of the nations and their flags bowing before him, enjoying peace and power. I wonder if he was thinking, I could win the world without pain. No weeping over Jerusalem, no crucifixion. Israel, the Roman Empire, then the world. And Satan's like, I'm now in control of these kingdoms of the world, Jesus. You know that. But if you will bow down to me, I'll give them to you. You have the right to them. You are special. You're the heir. He's trying to appeal to his ego. And his sense of rights. You're the son of God. So take the shortcut. Jesus, bypass. Bypass the suffering. Bypass your plan. Bypass the Father's will. It's going nowhere good for you. It's a pathetic and horrific path for you. Take what I'm offering you, man. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Again, another Deuteronomy quote in chapter 6. And some of you are like, does Jesus know any other parts of the Bible? Or is he just quoting Deuteronomy because that's convenient and on hand? Yes, he knows all the Bible. (laughs) He quotes Deuteronomy repeatedly for a strategic reason. Because it's a summary of all of Israel's rebellion against God in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness right now. All of those rebellions that took place with Israel was in the wilderness. Israel failed. Jesus is in the wilderness right now. Jesus is victor. He's letting Satan know, Lucifer, you may know the content of God's word. You may, know, you may know the content, the words of the word. I am the word. Don't play Bible trivia with me and expect to get anywhere. Verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. I want to close with this. There's a battle going on. There's a battle for your marriage. There's a battle for your purity. And there's a battle for your family and your children. The scriptures say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. God help us to keep our eyes open through to the good news of the authority of Jesus Christ. Now some of you today, just going through this thing about Jesus and the enemy in the wilderness, uh, you've been experiencing some weird feelings, maybe some feelings of fear. Now maybe, maybe... That's because you have embraced the wickedness of the world and it's just dawning on you right now that you do not have any protection whatsoever, any defense against the enemy. That's true. 
Outside of Christ, you have no, you, you have no defense. Or maybe you're here as a Christian. But you're not rooted enough in the scriptures. And so just talking about this is sort of making you feel afraid. And you're tempted to see the enemy behind everything. And, and, and I just need you to hear this. You don't have to live in fear, believer. If you know Jesus, not because of any spiritual ability in yourself. I don't have any spiritual ability in myself But I know this, Satan is terrified of the Christ that lives in me. You are dealing with a defeated foe. You're you're not fighting for a victory if you're a Christian. You're fighting from a victory that Jesus won at the cross. The good news of the gospel is that, yeah, you can't fix yourself. But the one who stood in the water, identifying you with you in all of your brokenness and alienation from God, he's your hope. And the one who stood for you in the wilderness, as you know, your defender, taking on the battle you could never do on your own, dealing with the threats and intimidation and temptation of the enemy, he's your victor. Now, maybe today... There's a battle in your life on your heart that you brought with you. It's heavy. It's heavy. After the service is over, and our worship team is going to come up, but after the service is over, and as people are connecting throughout the church, I want to encourage you, if you're in that place today, use the opportunity to pray. If you want to sit where you are, pray with a loved one, pray with a friend, pray with someone, pray quietly by yourself. If it's a little noisy over here, find another place and pray. I'm going to be here after if you need someone to pray with. But I just want to encourage you, don't let this moment pass. If you sense the Lord pressing you to pray over that burden that is crushing you today. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. All glory, all praise is yours, Lord Jesus. We sit here before you, Lord, in our hearts uh, as if on bended knee before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The one above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And we ask, Lord, that you would move in our lives today. Strengthen us to take our stand against the evil one. Remind us that you are our hope. Remind us that you are our defender. Lord, guide us, Lord, as we experience the assaults of the evil one in our lives, who is attempting to throw us off our own course to follow you. We trust you, Lord, but we need you. We need you today. Move today in our lives. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.